Welcome to the Open Doors podcast. This is John. I'm one of the pastors of the Open Door Presbyterian Church here in Pittsburgh. And it is Advent. We're actually uh, beyond the third Sunday of Advent now. And today's podcast is from a couple weeks ago, uh, the sermon from the very first week of Advent. We're going to release um, three sermons or messages uh, this week that will cover uh, those three Sundays of Advent. Christmas Eve is coming. If you'd like to worship with us on Christmas Eve, we are worshiping at the Neighborhood Academy um, in uh, Garfield, Stanton Heights area. Neighborhood Academy is a school where we uh, have our worship services. We'll be there at 6 p.m. on Christmas Eve. That's this coming Sunday night. Hopefully we'll see you then. And Merry Christmas if we don't see you. Here is our podcast for today. I'm going to invite uh, Emily Kauser to come forward to read scripture and uh, share God's word with us this morning. Good morning. Good morning. For those of you I haven't met, I am a field education student at the seminary this year, and I'm doing my field education placement here at the Open Door. So, as part of our partnering relationship, I would ask if you would be willing to provide some brief feedback on my sermon today so that I can continue to grow in my preaching. So, I've created some handy little feedback forms. They should be on the center side of the aisles, if you could pass them down. And if there's not enough in your row, you could go steal some from other rows. And if you don't have a writing utensil, I think there are some colored pencils on a desk right outside the door. So I might receive some in color. Um, And then there's an envelope to put them in on the desk right outside these doors when you're finished. Thank you. Let us listen to God's word for us this morning from Isaiah. Oh, that you would tear open the heavens and come down so that the mountains would quake at your presence as when fire kindles brushwood and the fire causes water to boil to make your name known to your adversaries, so that the nations might tremble at your presence. When you did awesome deeds that we did not expect, you came down. The mountains quaked at your presence. From ages past, no one has heard, no ear has perceived, no eye has seen any God besides you, who works for those who wait for him. You meet those who gladly do right, those who remember you in your ways. But you were angry, and we sinned. Because you hid yourself, we transgressed. We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a filthy cloth. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. There is no one who calls on your name or attempts to take hold of you. For you have hidden your face from us and have delivered us into the hands of our iniquity. Yet, O Lord, You are our father, we are the clay, and you are our potter. We are all the work of your hand. 
Do not be exceedingly angry, O Lord, and do not remember iniquity forever. Now consider, we are all your people. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please pray with me. Holy God, you tore open the heavens and came down through the Incarnation. As we wait for Christ's return this Advent season, make yourself known to us this morning through word and sacrament, that our longings for you might be touched. Amen. Oh, that you would tear open the heavens and come down. Our passage begins with a plea for God to make God's presence known among us. I echo this plea today. Do you? Oh God, that you would tear open the heavens and come down and make a way for peace in Israel-Palestine. Oh God, that you would tear open the heavens and come down and bring an end to gun violence in our cities. Oh God, that you would tear open the heavens and come down and bring justice to our planet ravaged by climate change. Oh God, that you would tear open the heavens and come down and make yourself known to us unmistakably when we're lonely and afraid and grieving. We want God to come down. When we see the overwhelming brokenness and suffering around us and in our own lives, we don't want an explanation. When we read the news in the morning, and see the devastation happening in our world, we don't ultimately want an explanation to why a God we pro profess to be good would somehow allow these bad things to happen. When we're anxious and lonely and tired and afraid, we don't ultimately want a theological proposal or a theory. We want God to act. We want God to come down and make things right. We want God's presence to be known to us. Today is the first Sunday of the season of Advent, and as John mentioned, Advent is the first Sunday of the church calendar. So Happy New Year, everyone. And in Advent, we await Christ's birth. We await the celebration of when God did come down through the Incarnation. God tore up of the heavens and came down through the person of Jesus. But that's not ultimately what we're waiting for in Advent, because that already happened. We're waiting for Christ's return. We're waiting for God to tear open the heavens and come down again and make all things right once and for all. We're waiting for eschatological consummation. There's that word again that John has been using recently, the eschaton. We're in this in-between time between the inauguration of the kingdom of God ruled by Jesus. That's what we celebrated last Sunday on Christ the King Sunday. But we're waiting for that kingdom to be consummated, for this eschaton, for the total end of suffering and grief and death and evil. We're in an in-between time. I want to suggest that Advent might be characterized by two particular practices, lament and hope. Let's turn to this beautiful and rich passage from Isaiah to consider how it might form us this Advent season for lament and hope. The book of Isaiah spans a large period of Israel's history, likely from near the beginning of Assyria's conquest of the northern kingdom of Israel, all the way through the Babylonian, Babylonian exile, 
and through the post-exilic period when the land was under Persian control. The section we have for today, Isaiah 64, comes right near the end of the book of Isaiah and is in this post-exilic time. So the people have returned to the land, but exile does not quite seem to be over. Jerusalem lies in ruins, God still seems far away. Disillusionment has settled in among the people. This post-exilic period was characterized by geographical displacement and the challenges of trying to rebuild community and sustain faith when returning from this traumatic devastation of the exile. The people are questioning, is God with us? Is God powerful to fulfill God's promises of restoration that God gave us? Did God leave us? Israel made sense of the exile as God withdrawing from the temple and withdrawing from engaging God's people because of Israel's sin. So they understood that as their sins built up, they polluted the temple and God withdrew. That's how they made sense of what they were experiencing in exile. The exile was therefore not just characterized by removal from the land, but, from but by removal of God's presence from the particular place of the temple and from the particular people of Israel. And so after the exile, as the people have returned to the land, they're wondering, is this exile over? Because they're looking around and seeing that things don't seem to be right. Their land is under control of another empire. There's injustice and division in the community. God seems far away and hidden. Scholar Ellen Davis describes Isaiah, and particularly this section, the end of Isaiah, as a prophecy for the in-between times, between utter devastation and the emergence of a revitalized community. And we are in an in-between time, too. And so we look to Isaiah to show us how to make sense of our in-between time, between the incarnation and consummation of God's kingdom. This passage is a communal lament, expressing the feeling that God has hidden God's self from God's people. And maybe you feel that way at times in our own context and devastation. Maybe it feels like God is far away at times. Maybe it feels like God is hidden. And we see in Isaiah 64 that lament and confession are inextricably bound together. As the community is lamenting their devastation, they're confessing how their own sins are wrapped up in what they're experiencing. Verse 6 says, We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a filthy cloth. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. What a compliment of us. We're like filthy cloths and fading leaves. In here we see that the people are trying to grapple with the two realities of responsibility and limitation. On the one hand, they're responsible for their sins. They're responsible for the devastation they're experiencing because of how their sins are wrapped up with that. But they're also so caught up in their sin that they're limited, they can't save themselves from this devastation. They're responsible for where they find themselves, but they don't have the power to remove themselves from what they're experiencing. They need God to intervene. They need God to save them. And we do too. 
In this wrestling with responsibility and limitation, it almost seems that the community is blaming their sins on God. I don't know if you caught that in the passage. Verse 5 says, But you, God, were angry, and we sinned. Because you hid yourself, we transgressed. Verse 7 says that God delivered them into the hands of their iniquity. It seems like they went to place their sins on God. God, it's your fault that we sin. And on first glance, our passage can look like that. But just a few chapters before, Isaiah 59 says, See, the Lord's hand is not too short to save, nor his ear too dull to hear. Rather, your iniquities have been barriers between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you, so that he does not hear. We cannot blame our sins on God. We are the ones who are unclean. But we need God to intervene because we can't save ourselves from our own sin. Confession does not take away the devastation that this community and that our communities are experiencing. It doesn't take away the disillusionment and disappointment and pain and grief that we experience. But it turns our eyes to God because it helps us recognize that we need God to save us. We have to look beyond ourselves, beyond our own abilities to save us. I wonder what it might look like to practice lament this Advent season. Perhaps reading the news in the morning can be a practice of lament, rather than being paralyzed by what we read. Could we turn the news into a cry for God to intervene in the situations we read about? Maybe we give voice to our lament through journaling or art, poetry, dance, moving our bodies, giving expression to what we're holding inside our hearts. Can we also create space for lament as a church community in this time of intense transition? I think that we have a lot of good work to do ahead of us before we can move into our next chapter together as a congregation and invite long-term leadership. And we've started that work. Megan and Katie led a small group over the summer to help us process the changes that we're experiencing. But we have more work to do in naming what we are lamenting. Naming together our laments. And our laments differ from one another here because we have different experiences, different histories. We're lamenting different things. But until we name them together, we're isolated and fragmented in our own individual experiences of grief and loss here. And we see that lament is tied with confession here. We need to confess our own brokenness as a community and how that's wrapped up with where we find ourselves in this moment. As we lament and confess together, we can move forward in a healthy way into what's ahead of us. sorrow, pain, and fear that leads us to lament and confession, I want to suggest that our hearts are working properly, that it's not problematic that we're lamenting. It means that we're feeling the profound disconnect between reality and what we were created for. It's a good thing to feel that disconnect as painful as it is. It helps us recognize what God intends for us, and to step forward closer to that. 
And as we name brokenness and confess our responsibility in it, we are led to the practice of hope. Lament puts our hope in God, helping us to recognize, as I said earlier, that God is who we need to save us. This passage from Isaiah hopes, uh, forms us to hope for God to act in specific ways. First, this passage forms us to hope for God to act dramatically. Here, verse 1 again. Oh, that you would tear open the heavens and come down, so that the mountains would quake at your presence. In order to appreciate this statement, we need to rid ourselves of our educated Western minds and appreciate ancient Israel's conception of the universe. So I have made a handy drawing for us. <laughs> so ancient Israel saw the earth as this sort of flat disk. And it was surrounded by the dome of the sky. And the dome kept the earth protected from the watery chaos that surrounds it all around. The earthly temple is where God dwells on earth, but that's just a mirror of the heavenly temple outside of the dome where God's presence truly is. And mountains anchor the entire universe. They're what keeps everything steady. So when Israel is crying out for God to tear open the heavens, they're asking God to rip this solid boundary of the sky dome. This boundary between the heavenly temple, God's throne, and the earth, to break that boundary and to come down. When the community pleads that the mountains would quake at God's presence, they're envisioning the entire universe shaking, the very pillars that are holding everything secure, trembling at God's power and presence. <coughs> that we need God to do something that we can't do ourselves. Hope turns us to God's dramatic power that's so far beyond anything that we could do. We need God to respond. We can't bring justice ourselves. Okay. Hopefully you got the conception of the universe. It might be distracting if it stays up there. Thanks. This passage not only hopes for God to act dramatically, but it also, also hopes for God to act in ways that surprise us. Verse 3 says, When you did awesome deeds that we did not expect, you came down, and the mountains quaked at your presence. As someone who generally likes to have a plan, I find it comforting that God acts in ways that we do not expect, because it means that things don't happen on my own agenda. There's an invitation here to be open to surprise. And that's refreshing. And third, this passage hopes for God to act on behalf of those who wait for God. Verse 4 says, From ages past, no one has heard, no ear has perceived, no eye has seen any God besides you who works for those who wait for him. God acts in God's timing, not ours. Waiting for God is trusting God for the long haul. It means surrendering our timeline and waiting for God's initiative, God's terms, rather than ours. What does it look like to hope for God to act dramatically in ways that surprise us on behalf of those who wait for God? 
I suggested that hope, like lament, is a practice, not an abstract conception. And I think that most simply, practicing hope means moving forward in our daily lives with wholeheartedness. It means doing what's right before us with care and diligence, doing our work, caring for people around us, accepting the invitations from God at the small moments. And why is something as simple as going through our daily lives, why is that hopeful? Because if we didn't hope for God to act, we might as well give up. We have enough evidence around us that if things were up to us, we would lead ourselves to our own destruction. And so as we move forward with wholeheartedness, expectantly, we're anticipating that God will act. Practicing hope also means actively resisting the temptations to put our hope anywhere other than in God. And our culture's holiday season is full of these temptations. Temptations to put our hope in stuff, in some new gadget or item or luxury that promises that it will take us out of our devastation. Temptations to put our hope in relationships, as if if we just cooked the perfect meal and got everyone the perfect gifts, then everyone would be happy and everything would be okay. Temptations as the new year comes to put our hope in a new diet or so-called wellness plan, as if somehow forcing our bodies to be something other than what they currently are would finally make us happy. Practicing hope means resisting these lies, these alternative narratives, these temptations to put our hope anywhere other than in God. This Advent season, which can be in one of the craziest times of the year, we are invited to be a community shaped by the practices of lament and hope. We are invited individually and communally to cry out to God, to tear open the heavens and come down, to give voice to our pain and grief, and to confess how our own brokenness and sin is tied up with what we're experiencing. We are invited to be a community that hopes for God to act dramatically, to tear open the heavens, for the mountains to quake, for God to act in ways that surprise us, and for God to act on behalf of those who wait for God in God's timing, not ours. We practice that hope by moving forward wholeheartedly, anticipating God's action, and by resisting the temptations to put our hope elsewhere. We hope because God does not abandon God's people. We are the clay and God is our potter. God does not abandon the works of God's hands, but will continue to shape us, shaping us one day to completion. May our lament and our hope be a witness to God's power and God's promises. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen. Thanks so much for listening in today. Um, the music from today's podcast is by our band, This Side of Eve. And you can hear all of our Christmas music and um, all of our music, really. Uh, at our site, uh, thissideofeve.bandcamp.com. You can stream it there, download it from there. Um, but either way, hope you enjoy it. Here's the rest of O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. Emmanuel.